Today's video was recorded on July 19th, 2022, and this is the second in our series that explores the Transfiguration story. So in this lesson, we show the connection of the Transfiguration of Jesus to Moses and the Exodus. There's a technique of how Jesus and the Gospel writers communicate that is to cause the mind of their audience, and that includes you, to bring up a verse or a story from their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And by bringing to mind something from the Old Testament, Jesus is able to bring the entire meaning of that event to bear on his present circumstances without ever saying a thing. And this is what's happening with the Transfiguration story. Jesus, through his actions, and the Gospel writers, by the way they tell the story and the details they choose to include, cause that first-century audience to ask themselves, where have we heard these details before? And those details, of course, point them back to Moses as the first Redeemer of Israel, and that conveys that Jesus, then, is the second or final Redeemer of Israel, which is the Messiah. So we hope you can join us as we continue our exploration of the Transfiguration so that you can see the story with new eyes and hear God speak with new ears, and that God will give you new insight into the deeper meaning that is found in this enigmatic story. We hope you enjoy part two of the background to the Transfiguration of Jesus and how it connects to Moses and the Exodus. Well, let's get started tonight, folks. We are on the Transfiguration Part 2. And last week, we did an introduction to the Transfiguration, kind of laying out everything that we're going to be covering. And then this week, we're going to be looking at the Transfiguration and how it connects to Moses on Mount Sinai and the message that is being sent through Jesus' actions and then the story as the gospel writers are telling us. Now, the picture we have there in the background, another transfiguration painting, this one from about 1673 to 1678, and this is a Flemish painter, and he took on the name Michelangelo, Michelangelo Emenrate, and not born with that name, but he took on, obviously, took on the name Michelangelo, but this is another depiction of the Transfiguration. So today, the Transfiguration Part 2 and Moses. And we're going to make those connections between what Moses is doing on Mount Sinai, going up a mountain, and what Jesus is doing going up a mountain for the Transfiguration. It uh, helps to bring to mind, for that first century audience, Moses as, the, as a Redeemer, or the first Redeemer of Israel, and of course the Messiah, Jesus, the second Redeemer of Israel. All right, so one thing to note that we provide a class handout each week. If you go in the description section below, you'll find a link to our website, which is figtreeteaching.com, where you can print out or download the PDF of the handout. I do this for every lesson, but it's really important for this one because we're bringing together a whole lot of information, data, that's going to help build a, a picture for you, a foundation. And that class handout is a tool that you can use to help organize everything and then be able to go back and reflect on it. 
when you have time, you can go back and review the the uh, all of the places that I'm pointing out, because a lot of these are not going to be familiar to many people watching the video, but they can be very helpful for understanding uh, the context that we're, that we're building. Now, so I talked last week about the overall goal. What's the point? You know, God has placed it in my heart to do a series on the transfiguration. And what's my overall goal of doing this? Well, I really want to provide the broadest foundation for you, the audience, for understanding what's happening. And that broad foundation comes from everything that's going on around the Transfiguration event, which is the cultural context. So we'll, we'll get into what we mean by that, but it's really to provide you with the information and that you have that to study that you can begin with the help of, of God and the Holy Spirit to have insight into what's happening. Now, the reason that I don't want to try to provide dogmatically solid conclusions is that this is a mystical event. And the mystical is not easily defined or easily held down. And so we want to leave it as mystical. And so I'm going to resist the urge throughout this series to try to solve the equation like we're doing a math problem. And I simply want to present the information. And then when you have the information between you, the Holy Spirit, God and the Holy Spirit, God will help put together the pieces to give you insight that you need in, in your own timing to understand the transfiguration. So this is the goal. Okay, so a little preview of today. Uh, three quick things. Well, not quick, but three things. Uh, first of all, we'll do a, a quick review of part one from last week. And I did get some feedback, which I really appreciate, on things that I can always clarify. It's not always obvious to me where I'm not being clear. And so I appreciate when people send feedback. So we'll do a quick review. We're going to read the, one of the Transfiguration accounts, and that's in Mark chapter 9, 2 to 8. And then we will look at Moses and the Exodus. So Exodus 24 and 34 as we compare this transfiguration story to that of Moses and the Exodus. Okay, so let's do a quick review. This is a review of last week. Now, one of the main things that is going to help us build the foundation is understanding the cultural context in which, A, the event happened, Jesus and his disciples, and then B, the writing of the, the Gospels by the Gospel writers and their audience. We need to understand as best we can their cultural context. And this is probably the hardest thing for modern Christians to do and to understand because obviously it's left out of the Bible. They don't explain things to an audience that they assume already understands the, the, the background, the meaning of it. And so the, one of the hardest part for us modern Christians is building the cultural context around what's being written or around the event itself and say, now, what would they have thought about that? So there are many uh, things that just aren't written that the first century audience would have understood. There are methods of communication that are vastly different than ours. 
and there's conceptions of, say, the cosmos, God's cosmos that he created. They have a conception of the cosmos that is different than ours. And we'll see that when the idea of the right, heavenly righteous and, the, and they're shining like the sun. And so what we have to do is explore around those gospel stories, around, say, Paul. And this is really my goal at, for Fig Tree Ministries, is to do what's called biblical studies, and that's building that cultural context around what's going on to help us understand at a deeper level these stories that are so important in the uh, Bible. Okay, so the very first thing, cultural context-wise, that we have to remember is Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, first-century Jewish, Jewish rabbi. He has Jewish disciples, and the foundation of everything for them is the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. But the Hebrew Bible for them is everything. And so as Jesus interacts with everybody in the audience, his disciples and everybody else, he's using the Hebrew Bible. They know the, the, the meaning of the Hebrew Bible. And so he's already got a cultural context that we often don't have. And then within that Hebrew Bible, there's one very important piece, and that is the Exodus and Moses. It's one of the central stories of the, the Old Testament that becomes a driver. Okay, so Exodus and Moses. So we need to understand how centrally important that story is to the first century Jewish audience. And partly because that story is about redemption. So redemption, Moses is the first redeemer of Israel, redeeming out, of under, out from under the yoke of slavery of the Pharaoh and Egypt, and then bringing them out through the desert into the promised land. The second redeemer for Israel is the Messiah. That's Jesus. And so we have the, the gospel writers are, very, are keen to include details that are going to help their audience think about the stories from uh, Moses. And that's all over the, our gospel writings because they're the function, right? Moses is the redeemer for Israel. Jesus is the redeemer for the whole world. All right, so really important that we recognize that cultural context. The second thing that helps our cultural context is that we forget about, well, we either forget about or we're not even aware, the number of events and the volume of writings that take place between the Old Testament and the New. And that's about a 500-year period. And what's so important is the, the Jews in Israel are wrestling with their sacred text, the Bible, their, their, the Hebrew Bible. And they're coming up with, what does this mean? How do we understand that? They're wrestling with all the same things that we wrestle with. And so when Jesus shows up, there is already common understanding of many things. And that's what we want to become aware of, because they can help enhance the message that's coming out of the New Testament. And then finally, uh, Jewish or rabbinic thinking. Now, uh, rabbinic, we'll, we'll look at one rabbinic writing today. Even though the rabbinic writings were written down at a later date, the 
concepts, the ideas, the thoughts, the, their manner in thinking uh, very often extend further into the past beyond Jesus. So even though we say, well, it wasn't written down at this time, yeah, but it reflects the type of traditional thinking that a Jewish audience would understand. And so very often you find similarities between rabbinic writing and things in the New Testament. And of course, they're coming out of that same cultural context. Okay, so that was the first thing we did. We talked cultural context, why that, why that is so important to understanding the details of the New Testament. The second one that we looked at, I spent a lot of time last week building up something called a mind map. Now, the mind map is an artistic representation of all of the information that's going to go in to inform a certain situation. So, for instance, the transfiguration, that becomes the central point. And then we begin to say, what are the areas that we need to understand that are going to help inform the transfiguration? And I came up with 10. Now, you might come up with more. Somebody else might come up with less. I'm just going to put 10 down. And 10 was a good number. I need to make it manageable. So, the first two... The first two pieces have to do with Psalm 42 and 43. Now, this will happen in a couple weeks, but Psalm 42 and 43, and then what's called a Midrash, and that's interpretation of Psalm 43. So how did the rabbis look at Psalm 43? And I'm telling you, it fits the transfiguration. So that's one of those, it would be an idea that extends further back in history than Jesus, so that by the time Jesus shows up, they already have a concept of how you interpret Psalm 43. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at Exodus 24, the, where Moses goes up on the mountain. We'll look at Exodus 34, where Moses himself has his own transfiguration-type experience. Um, Isaiah 42, that'll enter the picture because Isaiah 42 is a messianic chapter within Isaiah. Mount Hermon, we spent some time last week looking at Mount Hermon, where Modern-day scholars believe the Transfiguration event took place, and oh, by the way, Mount Hermon is also connected to Psalm 42 and 43. We'll look at that in a minute. And then, as I mentioned before, this large uh, corpus of writings that span all the way through the first century that help us at least understand how the audience thought about things. It helps us understand their thinking. So, for instance, I, I, last week, and I really appreciate it, I got some feedback um, on this as a point of clarification. And so, last week, I used the example of the Apocalypse of Baruch. And this is a writing that's dated to the latter half of the first century. And the point of clarification is, this would not have influenced the disciples, not this particular document. But the idea in it, well, we have examples of that that go way back before uh, Jesus and his disciples. So what I wanted to use this for last week was simply to reflect the thinking of those in the first century. Because when we read the transfiguration story and somebody turns into bright light, we're not really sure what to do with that. We immediately assume, well, that's the divinity of Jesus that's showing. And I don't disagree with that, but in the first century, 
that was actually a common thought about the heavenly righteous. So that's what I want to show. There's something more going on in the first century. So the transfiguration to us may sound a bit strange, but not to them. And so, for instance, here's one verse, Apocalypse of Baruch, chapter 51, verse 3. Look in the description section below. There's a link to the Apocalypse of Baruch. You can read the same sentence yourself. So it says this, As for the glory of those who prove to be righteous on the account of my law. Now, the the key word there is righteous. Because Jesus is considered righteous. He's sinless. So the righteous, yes, what happens? Their splendor will be glorified by transformations. And the shape of their face will be changed into the light of their beauty. And so we see in the transfiguration story, Jesus' face changing into light. So again, just to reiterate for clarification, this wouldn't have influenced the, the disciples, well, but the ideas are there in the first century, not this particular document that comes a little bit later. So, but let me show you something, because you might say, well, then it doesn't count, but let me show you two examples from the New Testament itself, and one of them are Jesus's words. So, uh, two examples, and you can look them up when you have time, or you can pause the video or the, or the recording, and you can go and, and check it out. But Matthew 13, 43, Jesus is explaining a parable, and he says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So he has the idea of the righteous and shining like the sun. So in God's creation, God's cosmos, the righteous shine like the sun. Okay, that's Jesus' words. Uh, another one, Paul. And again, check this out when you have a chance. Philippians 2, 14 to 15. Now, you don't see the word righteous, but you see the idea of righteousness. So, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless, right? Blameless. And innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, if you're without blemish, yes, that's, a, that's, the, that's like the, a reference to like the lamb that has no blemish. So you are like a child of God without blemish and you shine as lights or some translations say, shine as the stars. So again, Paul, is his audience understands the, their concept of the cosmos. Paul does, and he's using that language to help them understand the importance of our own uh, righteousness, that it starts today, that you live in the world today as a shining light, and the world will see it. Now, I keep using the phrase cosmos, and I want to make sure it's God's cosmos. He created everything in the cosmos. Right here, this word, world, you shine as lights in the world. Guess what Greek word he's, Paul has there? The cosmos. You shine as lights in the cosmos. And this is so cool because I think it's a, it's a wonderful word to use for God's creation, what God created. 
because the word uh, cosmos, it means ordered beauty. Ordered beauty. That's God's creation. There's order and there's structure and there's beauty. And we live in that world to be part of shining as lights in that ordered beauty. It's, by the way, cosmos, cosmology is the idea of the created order. Cosmetology, that's ordered beauty that women uh, use makeup and jewelry. That's where we get that word from. It's the, the adornment of a female for beauty. Cosmetology. So, it's, um, again, the whole point is, what were they thinking in the first century? How do they understand the cosmos and righteous? Okay? Now, let's go back here. So, we have uh, Second Temple Writings. We'll put that in its place. A few weeks, probably two weeks from now, we'll talk about this idea of the heavenly man. That gets a little bit into Jewish mysticism. I'll show you an example tonight, rabbinic thought, that's going to connect Moses and the transfiguration. And then finally, this is number 10, um, is there's a progression in Mark. And the rabbis say, and that you'll find this throughout the Bible, that the kingdom comes through seeing and hearing. And it's not just, hey, I'm, my physical eyes are open and I can see you or I can hear you. It's more than that. It's beyond that. Can you see God's creation in the world today? Can you hear the voice of God? And so there's a progression in Mark where he's taking the disciples on a journey, and it's a journey of seeing and hearing, and he's opening his eyes. And the transfiguration story becomes this cool event where the disciples are seeing Jesus transfigure and hearing the voice of God to sit, to understand the reality of who Jesus is. And it's very powerful if we have eyes to see the progression in Mark. And then what we notice is, you, you know, as I said last week, you can't put these, they're not linear, they don't line up, they're just kind of randomly connected all over the place. And what has to happen is we then, as we understand all of these areas, they flow up and they give us some, they tell us something about the transfiguration. So that's why I have this in, a, in the chambered nautilus sense, not in a straight line or a list. Okay, now just to finish up our review, last week, um, Psalm 42, 43, very important. So as you're going through this series, make sure you become familiar with Psalm 42 and 43. And we noted last week that they're connected. Psalm 43, 2 and 43 are located around. Uh, near Mount Hermon. And this is also where the headwaters of the Jordan River are. And again, same mountain, that's the mountain that scholars believe now the transfiguration took place. So we look at Psalm 42, verses 6 and 7. We did this last week. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, that's where the, Jor the headwaters of the Jordan are, to the heights of Hermon. So now we have the Psalms connecting to the same location as the Transfiguration. Okay, that was all last week. 
Um, if you didn't see that first video, that'll help, again, build the foundation for your understanding and subsequent weeks to come. But this week, our task at hand is to look at the Transfiguration and Moses, and very important to that first century audience. Now, one thing to note. We just talked about Psalm 42 and 43. Well, the theme of Psalm 42 and 43 are about redemption. You're awaiting redemption from God. God, uh, my soul is, is downcast. Where are you? My, the enemies are mocking me. Where is your God? When, when am I going to finally get back to the point where I can climb the, the holy, your holy mountain and worship you? So they're asking for deliverance. Come on, God, when will I be delivered? And then in Psalm 43, uh, the psalmist says, send me your light and your truth. They're going to lead me out of whatever situation I'm in. Redeem me back into your presence, God. It's redemption. And that's exactly how the rabbis are going to see that phrase. And then we'd say, well, who's the first redeemer of Israel? Well, that's Moses. And he's there. Who's the second, the last redeemer of Israel? It's the Messiah. And so all of these are going to be strangely connected, but uh, that's how Moses comes into this picture here. Okay. Now, to start off, we haven't done this yet, is we're going to read one of the accounts, Mark, starting at verse 2 uh, through 8. This is from the New, Inter uh, New International Version, the NIV. And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to read it through, and then I'm going to circle back. And we're going to pick out some details because what Jesus is doing and the gospel writers, the way that they retell the story, are going to use details to point you back to the story of Moses so that that comes to mind and all the meaning that comes with it, the meaning of redemption, so that you understand what Jesus is up to. They're going to cause your brain to pull up the words of God to then interpret the meaning. Okay, so starting at verse 2. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. All right, very short. That's Mark's telling of the transfiguration. And then our big question, <laughs> what does that all mean, right? I'm a little confused at this point. So let's, let's start pulling out some of the details to help our understanding. All right, so if I go back to verse 2, starting with verse 2, I just want to show you some details that we'll pull out and then compare to Exodus. So the first one is right off the bat. If there's one thing I've tried to impress uh, throughout 
all of the lessons that we have up at Fig Tree Ministries is when you see a number, pay attention. Especially with Mark. Mark uses the phrase immediately a lot. He's, he skips immediately, immediately, immediately. He moves from one thing to the next very quickly. And then all of a sudden he has, after six days, stop, why the detail? Why did Mark tell us that? Now, A, because that's how it happened. B, he has a reason for telling you that. Because he doesn't have to tell you. He could have said after a couple days. He could have said immediately. He could have used that phrase again. But he doesn't. So he includes six days. After six days, Jesus took, and how many disciples and their names? Three, Peter, James, and John. They go up a high mountain. And he's transfigured. Okay? So now what we're going to do is start building our little list of details. So if I want to compare Mark 9 to Exodus, then let's put some details in. Six days. Three named disciples. They go up on a mountain. Yes? Okay, there's the first three details. And we go back to verse 5. Or I'm going to go down to verse 7. A cloud appeared and covered them. So we have that detail of a cloud. A voice came from the cloud. And then, of course, God is speaking. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Okay? So we go back to our details. We got six days, three named disciples, a mountain, a cloud that covers them, and God speaking. All right, so there's our details for the story. Now, let's go and read in Exodus. Let's see what happens. Because where have we heard, where have we heard those details before? Well, it's in an Exodus story. Yes? Okay? It's about the redemption of Israel. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. So if you have your Bible, open and read along. Pause the video. Read it yourself. Exodus 24. This is right after the Ten Commandments. Moses has read the covenant aloud to the people. They all said, yes, we agree. We will obey. And starting at verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy elders went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright as the as bright blue as the sky. Excuse me. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. Now notice, Moses and how many dis- people have names? Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, three named disciples. They go up on a mountain. And notice, twice the Bible tells us they saw the God of Israel, or the Israelites, they saw God. They're seeing. And this is so cool because the story, just like the Transfiguration story, serves double duty. Yes, they went up with an, up on the mountain. We're not exactly sure how to describe how you see God, because that's a conundrum in the Bible. But more importantly, it's telling us that their eyes are being opened to who God is. Not a few weeks ago, they're slaves in Egypt. They don't fully understand the God they're following. And now they're seeing God. And the rabbis, they talk about humanity is asleep. It's one of the metaphors of the Bible. We're asleep, and we need to be woken up to be able to see and hear 
the kingdom of God. Because that's where we, we see and we hear. So the story not only serves to chronicle the events that took place, but the fact that they were able to see, their eyes were being opened. They're on an ascending journey. They're ascending the mountain. That's the, uh, the metaphor for a spiritual journey. And they see God. That's the journey for all humanity. We're to ascend the mountain metaphorically to see and hear the reality of God's cosmos. And that's exactly what we find in the transfiguration story. The disciples are ascending the mountain, and they see, and they hear, and they're waking up to the reality of God's cosmos and who Jesus is in that. So it's, ah, it's so brilliant to take us back to this Exodus story. Now, let's continue. Let's, let's continue. We've got to get on the task at hand here. Exodus 24, 15 to 16, just a few verses down. We find Moses now. Moses went up on the mountain, and what happened? The cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. So we have a cloud again. We have a reference to six days. And then a voice calling from the cloud to Moses. And you say, ah, I see what they're doing. They're pointing us back to this amazing story where they see God on Mount Sinai, right? So Exodus, we have six days, a reference. We have three named disciples. We have a mountain that they're going up. That's, a, that's the spiritual ascension. Uh, there's a cloud that descends. There's, God is speaking. And so you begin to see that as the, the gospel writers are telling us not only what did happen, but the, way, what the details they choose to communicate, it brings their audience back to a story of Exodus about the first redeemer of Israel. So these details over here in Mark line up with these details over here in Exodus. And you say, now we, we put those two stories right next to each other and we're going to mine them so we can understand the meaning. That's what we're trying to do. Okay? So that's pretty cool, I think, when you, when you see what they're up to. It's about the text because they live that Hebrew Bible. So everything is going to relate back to something in that Hebrew Bible and the meaning that's carried with it. All right, but there's more. Let's go. What I want you to do now is turn to uh, Exodus 34. This is Exodus 34, 29. It's only one phrase, but... When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. What's happening here? His face was radiant. So Moses, because he's up on that mountain with God, in that, in that experience, he begins to reflect or radiate the glory of God. So he's having his own transfiguration-type event. And, of course, the story of Jesus on his transfiguration points back to this. Paul will also have his own reference of this uh, when he talks about the veil. It's in 2 Corinthians, and he talks about the veil, because Moses needed a veil, and then our glory and the transformation that we're going to have. Check out uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Okay, so you can see, again, 
you climb the mountain, you get close to God, and a transfiguration type event happens. Now, I want to show you something. Uh, we need to deal a little bit with the Hebrew, and uh, I'll do one little aside on this. The Hebrew word for face was radiant, to be radiant, the verb, karan. So, karan. His face was karan. I took that, this is from the NIV, his face was radiant. The word for skin, skin of his face. Now, see, in Hebrew, it says skin of his face. We would say his face. But it actually says the skin of his face radiated light. Some Bibles, like the NIV here, uses radiant. Some Bibles say his face shone. Now, what does that mean? Right? So I see the word radiant, and I see the word shone, but I'm not really sure what exactly does that mean. What's the, what's the larger context to that? In fact, when we talked about thinking about the cosmetology, right, you hear his face was radiant. Ah, it looks his youthful look. You know, he used some oil of Olay uh, soap, and now he has a radiant look, you know, like we're watching a, a, a makeup commercial. Um, what does this mean? What does it mean to Quran to radiate light, right? So there's something a little deeper here. And I just want to show you one quick aside, uh, because this word it is used again in the Old Testament to talk about radiating light, okay? So, or the, the light as a noun. So it shows up in a, a Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3.4. We don't give a lot of love to Habakkuk, so if you haven't turned to his uh, writing in a while, go ahead and open up Habakkuk 3.4. And now this is going to be talking about God. Remember, we're dealing with that, that word, Quran, to say, what does it mean? So, his splendor was like the sunrise. The his there is God. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. And rays there is the plural of the noun karen, which is from the verb karan. Okay? So you can see there's when you have the noun karen, rays. It's something that's radiating and it's light, like the sunrise is radiating out from his hand. So if we go back to this, his face was, and that's why I kind of put it in radiating light, because that's actually what the word means, not just radiant, like a glowing look. Now, this is a total aside, but it may answer a question that many people have, and it has to do with this word Quran. Hang with me for a second. It's a little bit of a, a, little bit of a history lesson here. So that word, Quran, we translate it here, radiate light, and it's, it's used elsewhere in the Bible for radiating light. But it also gets translated as horn, horn, H-O-R-N, like the horn of a bull, or the horns of an altar. And so the horn, or horns in the Old Testament, are also a symbol of strength. Where is the strength? Where's the point of strength in the bull, the point of his power? It's in the horn. And so the horn of the altar is a symbol of strength. Uh, in Hebrew, 
the rays of the sun are actually karen, horns of the sun. Where does the power of the sun come from, right? If you felt it, if you stood in the sun, and you feel the power of the sun in its rays, karen, or horns. So, okay, so it gets a little, a little crazy here, but hang on a second. Here's the, and here's what I'll, uh, I think for many people, this will be an answer to a question they have had. When the Hebrew Bible, so this is a little bit of history, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Latin, it was by Jerome, St. Jerome. And he, he lived in Jerusalem and was fluent in Hebrew. And they wanted the Hebrew Bible in, in a Latin copy. And what he came up with was the, what's called the Latin Vulgate. Now, when he got to this word Quran, he used a Latin word that means horn, but not necessarily means radiating light, right? So he put in a word there that's more describes horn than radiating light. And so what happens is, because of that little discrepancy, many artists, Christian artists, who read, who were reading the Latin, would paint Moses looking like this, with horns coming out of his head. In fact, Michelangelo, when he, his sculpture of Moses, has horns coming out of his head. Why? Well, it's because of that, instead of radiating light, horn, and now you get depiction of horns. Now here, this one, this one actually looked like horns of radiating flames, like light coming out. But that's why you get pictures of Moses with horns. This one, then, and this actually makes some sense now, because we've got horns. They look like horns, but they're radiating light of horns. They're horns of light, right? As God's glory is coming through Moses and then emanating out. So this little crazy, you've got, uh, the point is, what happened to Moses' face, right? It's radiating light. And the horns are the strength of God, so it's the glory of God, the shining power of God is coming, radiating through Moses. Now, what happens with Jesus? Exactly the same thing. His clothes and his face, right? They're radiating light. It's the strength of God's glory is being revealed in him. And glory, meaning shining power, is, is coming forth. Really cool how much is encapsulated in that idea. So, if we go back to our list a little bit, six days, three named disciples, mountain, they go up a mountain, that spiritual journey. There's a cloud that covers, God speaks. And then what happens in Mark? Well, there's, there's radiating light. What happens in, to Moses? He's radiating light. And you can see how these gospel writers are lining these up to say, I'm pointing you to the Exodus. In fact, pointing you to the Exodus in Luke. So this is one sentence out of Luke or two sentences out of Luke. Luke 9, 30 to 31. He says, two men, Moses and Elijah, look, look at, check this out, appeared in, in glorious splendor. So how are, how are Moses and Elijah looking as well? They're the heavenly righteous. They're talking with Jesus and they spoke about his English departure. Greek, right? That's the word departure. What's the Greek? Well, it's the word that we get, exodus. So Luke is even putting in the word, that's a comment by Luke, right? He's, tell, he's describing what they're talking about. 
they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring into fulfillment at Jerusalem. It's the ultimate in redemption. It's not redemption simply from the yoke of slavery, but it's the redemption from sin and ultimately the redemption from death. And when Jesus resurrects, he says, See, there is something on the other side, and you can be redeemed even from death. And so it's the ultimate in redemption. And of course, Jesus does this for the whole world. Moses did it for Israel. So it's so cool. This is the point Trans, uh, Transfiguration and Moses, you got to line up those details because that's exactly what those what Jesus intends and what the gospel writers are doing. Okay, now, with that, showing you how we can connect it to Moses, I want to I show you one more point about radiating light and the righteous, because this is a common theme within uh, Second Temple period, within what's written in our Bible, and then also in rabbinic writing. And so I'm going to show you one example from rabbinic writing that will reinforce what we're saying. But I want to give you a little bit of explanation before getting there. There's mystery surrounding Moses' death. And when the Bible is not clear on something, we often fill in the details ourselves. Now, we do it a particular way, in our modern way, but in the ancient world, they would tell stories, almost like a parable. A parable is going to fill in. It's not a real life story. They're going to fill in details to help you understand something in the text that might be maybe ambiguous. And so there's stories of Moses and about his death that are in wide circulation in the first century. And you can rightly call them a type of folklore. Not that they took them as God's truth, but they would be theologically accurate but it's just not from the text. And they, don't wor they didn't worry about that so much as we moderns do, about pulling things in from outside the text. But they're widely accepted stories. They're filling in those spaces, the missing spaces of the Bible. So, there are stories about Moses' death. There's actually one in the New Testament. So there's a story of his death, and then there'd be a similar one from the rabbinic writing. But let me show you the one in the New Testament, just so you know it's there. It's in the book of Jude. Now, Jude is one chapter, and it's probably one page in your Bible, and it's right before the book of Revelation. But in Jude, we hear one of these bits about Moses' death. And so here's what it says. It's about after Moses died, a dispute broke out for the body of Moses. So it says, uh, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil, about the body of Moses. Now, is there anything in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy or the Old Testament, that recounts a story of Michael, the archangel Michael, disputing with the devil about the body of Moses? No. There's nothing in the Bible. But there are plenty of stories out there, the folklore about what's going on, to fill in those blanks. Now, there's an early church source that says that this is coming from a document called the Assumption of Moses. And that document is an, a recounting of the end of Moses' life, even though it's not what we would say biblically inspired. Okay? 
I just want to give you an example. That's something about the death of Moses shows up in our New Testament. But here's another one. This is from rabbinic writing, talking about the, the death of Moses. And it's similar. It's similar because there's going to be a contest going on. And in this case, it's for the soul of Moses. The adversary, who we call Satan, the word adversary in Hebrew is Hasatan, the adversary. Hasatan. That eventually gets turned into capital S Satan. But in Jewish angelology, that Hasatan, the adversary, is called Samael. Okay? Now, sorry, I only included that because. You're going to see in this text, they're going to talk about Samael. He's the, um, Samael is the angel of death. Say, yeah, the angel of death or the grim reaper coming to get your soul. So the story goes like this. God sends Samael, says, okay, this is now Moses' day to die. So you're the angel of death. Go out and bring back his soul. So like the grim reaper, that's Samael. So it says this. Immediately, Samael, oh, by the way, sorry, Deuteronomy Rabbah 11. And again, link below, you'll be able to find this, read it yourself. So it says, Immediately, Samael clothed himself with wrath and buckled on his sword and wrapped himself in cruelty and came into the presence of Moses. When he saw, now Samael there is, that's the adversary. When he saw that Moses was sitting and inscribing the ineffable name, that's the name of God that you're not supposed to say, when he sees, he sees him sitting there, and then he sees that the splendor of his appearance was equal to that of the sun. There's the same idea. It's the righteous. So Samael is sent out to get this righteous soul of Moses, but the splendor of his appearance was equal to that of the sun. He resembled one of the angels of the Lord of hosts, and Samael began to fear Moses. Okay? Now the point, what's my, whole, what's my point in showing you this? Again, is simply to say, when you see the transfiguration story from the perspective of a first century person, you find this idea all over the place, that the righteous shine that there's radiating light that comes from Moses, that one of the points, and I know I'm trying to resist doing this, but one of the points of the transfiguration is it's showing you the present reality at the same time, the future. This is the heavenly reality of what Jesus is today, but it also says you're going to be one of those righteous in the, in the kingdom of, of your father, so start shining your light today. There's something in it for us. It's not just that Jesus can transfigure and we can't. Paul wants us to do the same thing. And now, obviously, there's more to Jesus in transfiguration, but you got to understand there's something in there for us in this transfiguration story. Okay, now let's wrap this up. What did we talk about, right? Well, you, this, the importance, the central imp importance of the book of Exodus, of Moses and the redemption of Israel. You know, when, when Jesus comes into town uh, before his crucifixion, it's the holiday of Passover. Passover is the day that God overthrew Pharaoh and the, the greatest army in the whole world. 
and delivered Israel out of that bondage. What do you think those first century Jews wanted Jesus to do? Come on, Jesus, fight the Romans, overthrow the Romans, deliver us from this oppression. You can do it. God's done it before. It's the holiday of redemption. Let's go, Jesus. And he says, I'm not here to do it that way. And it's radical because they don't know what to do with that then. And they get angry and they reject him and all that. It's, this is so central to the theme of what Jesus is doing, is being able to point back to that, that Exodus story in Moses. So we go right back to that. So we have that idea of the heavenly righteous, the, uh, the shining like the sun. And then when they point you back to that Exodus story, it's Jesus is a redeemer, just like Moses. Just like Moses on a small scale redeemed Israel, Jesus now redeems the whole world. And he becomes much greater than Moses. But to that first century audience, you got to compare him to Moses to say, here's what he's up to. This is the whole point. You might not be able to see that it's about redemption right now, but that's what the story's about. Okay, so we one last picture of our mind map. Make sure as you're moving along through this that you look at those 10 areas that I've laid out. We just covered Exodus 24 and Exodus 34 tonight, and then rabbinic thought and how those help us understand how the, that first century thought about Jesus and the transfiguration. And then as we keep putting in building blocks that are building that foundation, God willing, you will be able to see and hear with new eyes uh, and have a fresh new perspective uh, of what's going on in that transfiguration. All right, so that is Transfiguration Part 2 and how we can connect it to Moses.